Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. If you would, open up your Bibles and join me in the Gospel of Mark. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are copies under the seats nearby, and you can find the Gospel of Mark on page 836. So we are beginning a new sermon series this morning, and if you are newer to our church family, uh, we're committed to expository preaching or expositional preaching, so typically we're working through books of the Bible section by section, and my job is to expose God's Word, to help us understand God's Word, and to see how to live in light of it. So we're beginning the new series in the Gospel of Mark this morning, and I'm excited for this. Uh, Mark has been a favorite book of mine through the years. Um, I studied the Gospel of Mark more than any other book of the Bible when I was in grad school and uh, keep coming back to it. And so as we start this series, I want you to consider immersing yourself in the Gospel of Mark uh, with me. And so as you came in this morning, you should have been handed a ZF Mark Immersion Plan um, sheet, and that gives a few different ways in which you can immerse yourself in the Gospel of Mark. There's four ways uh, that you can use the Gospel of Mark to be and make disciples of Jesus. That's really at the heart of our purpose together as, as a church, to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ, and immersing yourself in the Gospel of Mark through this series will help to that end. So the four ways noted, and I actually encourage you to do all of them at different points in this series. One is to read it straight through. I encourage you to do that uh, in one sitting several times. If you've never just read through the Gospel of Mark, it takes about an hour and a half, do that a few times. Or read through a chapter or two a day and then restart. Another thing you do is slow down and study. And I have some questions and resources noted for you to use as you study the Gospel of Mark. Another thing you can do is redeem moments in your everyday life by studying the Gospel of Mark. And one way to do this is to use um, the Mark Scripture Journal. So uh, these Mark Scripture Journals have the text of Mark uh, on one side of the sheet and then a bunch of room for notes on the other side. So uh, you might have grabbed one on your way in. You can grab one on your way out. They're out in the lobby. And just take those with you as you're waiting for an appointment. Uh, I have some text written there that, that you can memorize from the Gospel of Mark that would be helpful to do as well. And then a final way you can use this is not to just grow as a disciple, but make disciples. One of the greatest ways to introduce someone who doesn't yet know Jesus, one of the greatest ways to introduce them to Jesus is with the Gospel of Mark. So some of you are, uh, you have an easy time. The Lord has gifted you to speak about Jesus with other people. Others of us can have a hard time in those kinds of conversations. One of the greatest secrets for helping people come to know Jesus is letting God himself talk to them through the Bible and in particular, through the Gospel of Mark. So give people a Bible. Encourage them to read the Gospel of Mark and then meet with them to talk about it. And there's some questions written there that you can use in your discussions with people as you meet with them um, over the course of studying the Gospel of Mark together. So let's read the text for this morning. Uh, it's the first 13 verses of the Gospel of Mark. And then we'll pray. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you or immerse you, drench you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your true and good and beautiful word. And so we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to behold wonders in this text and ultimately to behold your glory in Jesus and that our hearts would be captivated and we'd be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, before we walk through this text, I want to share uh, just a note on how to read the Gospel of Mark and then a note about the main idea in the Gospel of Mark, or the main themes. So first, how to read Mark. Uh, We have to read the Gospel of Mark at two levels. So Mark is, of the four Gospel accounts we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark is the shortest, it's action-packed, it's dramatic. He uses this word immediately over 40 times. And so this is really the most accessible and simple introduction to Jesus Christ. Uh, so at one level, we can read Mark at that, in that first accessible level, but this can be misleading because there really are two levels to Mark. There's the easy, quick surface level, but there's also a deeper level because Mark is a very subtle writer. As you pay careful attention, he's actually giving a number of allusions to the Old Testament Scriptures and especially the book of Isaiah. And so you can miss that because Mark is just so fast-paced and dramatic, and you can think, well, he's just saying what happened, which is true at one level, but he is being very careful and deliberate with the words he chooses and the things he chooses to write about, about Jesus. And so if you know the Old Testament, and especially Isaiah, you can pick up his references. So you have to let the words that Mark uses and the things that Jesus does remind you of the Old Testament. And so we'll note these going through the series. So in other words, if you want to understand Jesus better in the Gospel of Mark, one thing you can do is read the Gospel of Mark. Another thing you can do is go back and read Isaiah over and over. Because Isaiah, 700 years years before Jesus came, actually helps us to understand who Jesus is, and Mark is constantly drawing attention to that to help us understand Jesus. And you can understand Isaiah well by studying the Gospel of Mark too. So, read them both. So, that's how to read Mark. Second, what is the main idea? Well, I'm calling this series in the Gospel of Mark, The Way of Jesus. And this captures the two main themes in the Gospel of Mark. The two main themes are Jesus, may sound obvious, 
and discipleship. So the first thing is Jesus, in particular, His identity and His mission. So who He is and what He came to do. All through this book, Jesus is the focus. I think there's only two texts in the Gospel of Mark that don't draw explicit attention to Jesus. They're about John the Baptist, whose whole point was to point people to Jesus. So the book's about Jesus. And Mark uses this theme of the way to help us understand him. The word shows up two times right here in the introduction in these quotations from Isaiah. It's repeated throughout the book. Mark shows us that Jesus, and in fact, his whole gospel is structured this way. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified, and his way in the gospel of Mark is the way toward the cross. And so, it's not just a direction. It's not just the way toward the cross. It's actually a way of life as well. Jesus' way is the way of the cross. It's the way of self-sacrificial love. And so, on His way to the cross, He's instructing people about the way of the cross, the way of self-sacrificial love for others. That's the way of Jesus. And this title also captures the second theme of the book, which is discipleship. The way of Jesus isn't just His way to the cross. All through this book, He's calling people to follow Him on His way to the cross, on His way to Jerusalem. But this as well is not just a path toward Jerusalem, it's joining His way of living. The way that leads Him to the cross is the way that He calls people to follow. It's joining Him on the way of the cross, in the way of the cross. So, He asks us to deny ourselves and to live lives of self-sacrificial love. So here's what discipleship is. It's learning from Jesus to become like Jesus. That's what discipleship is, learning from Jesus to become like Jesus. And the Gospel of Mark captures this theme with this idea of the way of Jesus. We follow Jesus on the way and we learn from Him to become like Him. And when we look at Him, He embodies the way of the cross. You know what the early Christians were called before they were called Christians? The book of Acts tells us they were called the way. And the reason they were called that is most likely the same reason Mark uses this theme. He got it from Isaiah. And we'll be exploring this together over these coming weeks. So let's look now at the beginning of Mark. I love this text. Uh, these first 13 verses, really the first 15 verses of Mark, are, I think for me, top five texts of the Bible. And every line is filled with significance in light of the Old Testament. So this is going to be fun for me. It's also going to be really hard because we haven't committed here for five hours together. So I feel uniquely restrained this morning. I'm disturbed about it right now. So here's what we see. When we read Mark at two levels, not just blazing through this, saying, oh, well, John came. He was strange moving on. But we read it at two levels. We see what happened, then we, we think with Mark about what he's doing here. Here's what Mark tells us to expect from the book. I'm going to put it in one sentence. You can write this down. This is what we'll see in this text. This, here's what Mark tells us what to expect from the book. This is a gospel story about a new exodus led by Jesus, the divine servant king. So this is a gospel story about a new exodus led by Jesus, the divine servant king. That's what this first section shows us. And some of these words or ideas uh, may not sound familiar to you. 
may sound kind of like a mouthful, but grasping this uh, will help us read the rest of the Gospel of Mark well, especially at that careful second level. It'll ultimately then also help us follow in the way of Jesus. So for our time this morning, I just want to prove to you that this is what Mark is showing us from the introduction about what the whole book's about, that this is a gospel story about a new exodus led by Jesus, the divine servant king. So first, we'll just walk through this together. This is a gospel story. Verse 1, you can look at it with me again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Notice the first words there, the beginning. Beginnings lead to middles and climaxes and endings. So Mark is saying there's a story going on here, and this is the beginning of it. The Gospel of Mark isn't just a collection of the sayings of Jesus. It's not just a random collection of facts about Him. It's not just a manual for living. This is a story. It's the story of Jesus' ministry and death and resurrection, and it's a story that continues on today. What we read in the Gospel of Mark is the beginning. We're still living in it right now. This is our story. But what kind of story is this? Well, notice he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a gospel story. If you've been around Christianity for a while, you know that the word gospel means good news. So the, from the very first line, Mark wants to convince us that Jesus has brought good news to the world. He writes to convince us that this is about good news, not bad news. The well-known atheist Christopher Hitchens would have disagreed. Uh, he wrote a famous book called God is Not Great, and the subtitle is How Religion Poisons Everything. And his point is that religion is what is wrong with the world. It poisons everything. So if you think like Christopher Hitchens, and by the way, there are a lot of valid points that he makes. So much that is terrible in this world is done in the name of man-made religion. But if you're convinced of that, I want to invite you this morning and in coming weeks to listen to the gospel of Mark. Because Jesus, we see from the gospel of Mark, would agree with many of the criticisms that Christopher Hitchens made, Hitchens made about man-made religion. One of the great tragedies of world history is how some have done such terrible things in the name of religion, in the name of Jesus even, bringing this poison into the world. But the real Jesus, the Jesus that Mark shows us, brings flourishing to the world. This is good news for the world, bringing a healing, not poison to the world. And notice, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why it's good news. Not because we've thought some stuff up on our own to make the world better, but because in light of the mess we've made of this world, you and I together, God Himself has brought Jesus and proclaimed good news. He has brought the medicine we need. And so this is not a list of morals. This book's not just a collection of stories. It's not just a list of rules or quaint sayings or interesting snippets. This is the story of good news of Jesus Christ. So first, this is a gospel story. Second, this is a gospel story about a new exodus. So Mark gives us three witnesses to show us that this story that he is introducing here 
is about a new exodus. The witnesses are Isaiah the prophet, John the Baptist, and the ripped heavens. Let's look at each of these. First, Isaiah the prophet. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. As it is written, so Mark is saying, this is a gospel story about Jesus, and let me show you from Scripture. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Notice that word. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So this is actually a collection of three texts from the Old Testament, but Mark introduces this from Isaiah because Isaiah's prophecy is primary here. Mark quoted texts from the Old Testament that were well known by the Jewish people. The Jewish people were immersed in the stories and ancient scriptures in a way that we are not. Uh, So often we carry our Bibles to church, we dip in them from time to time, but we don't really know what's going on in there. We don't immerse ourselves in, in them like many of them did at that time. And so this is why biblical literacy is declining so rapidly today. And so this is why I'm encouraging to use those four ways to immerse yourself in the Gospel of Mark uh, with me in this series as well. And so the point is, though, that when Mark introduced these texts, most of those early readers who had either had been Jewish Christians or uh, Jewish unbelievers who were going to get to know Jesus or even Christians who quickly got to know the Old Testament, when he said these quotes, they wouldn't have kind of had a glazed over sense of like, well, that sounds ancient and interesting. It would have called to mind a whole universe of discourse. It would have called to mind not only where those texts came from, Exodus and Malachi and Isaiah, but the contexts in which these quotes were from. They just knew their Bibles, and they knew these texts. So, by calling to mind a whole universe of discourse, here's what I mean, because this happens to us today. Do you have someone in your life who loves a certain old movie or sitcom, like Seinfeld, The Office, Lord of the Rings, or some other old movie? Or maybe you're thinking, that's me. Um, People uh, think that as well. So what happens when this person gets together and has a conversation with someone else who shares a love for that old, sto- the old movie or old sitcom? You can hear them making references you don't notice, but you realize they did it because the other starts laughing, right? They're just giving random references that communicate a world to the other person, right? That's what's happening here. When Mark quotes scriptures, He's quoting these, and if you know the stories and you know the text, a whole world is opening up in your mind and being called to mind here. And so Mark doesn't need to spend paragraphs spelling it out uh, because it's being called to mind. And as I mentioned, Mark is a subtle and elusive writer. He wants us to slow down and study this as well. So words and quotes like this would often call promises to mind, and, and Isaiah is calling a whole collection of promises to mind here. So what is he calling to mind? One particular, Isaiah's vision of a new exodus. Mark quotes from Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 and the chapters that follow give us some of the greatest promises in the Bible. The New Testament authors constantly refer back to this section of Scripture. Jesus himself constantly referred back to Isaiah 40 and following. It's the most relevant context to even understand what the New Testament authors mean by the word gospel, because Isaiah uses that word in Isaiah 40. Um, So, 
What was Isaiah promising? He was promising that God would bring a new and greater exodus redemption for not only his people but the world. You remember the first exodus? Israel was enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt. God led them out of Egypt through the wilderness and then across the Jordan and into the promised land. That was the first exodus, but Israel's story after that is filled with sadness. They continually rejected God. They oppressed one another. And so God, true to His promise, He even gave them at the first exodus, He sent them into exile out of the land. So they were carried off to Babylon. They were enslaved again. And they were in need of another exodus, but a greater one. And so Isaiah's promise to these future people in exile in Babylon, his promise went beyond what they could have ever hoped. Because Isaiah said a messenger would come to prepare the way for the Lord to return. And then God Himself would come, and He would bring comfort and forgiveness to His people. He would rescue people from their exile in Babylon. He would gather those exiles and chart a way, a path through the wilderness back into the promised land. Repeatedly in Isaiah, there's this theme of the way or the way of the Lord or this highway for God through the wilderness. Isaiah says God will make a way out of exile through the wilderness and back to Jerusalem, and God will lead them on this way. He'll gather them out of exile to follow Him on the way back to Jerusalem, and when He gets to Jerusalem, He will be enthroned as King in the temple. That's the vision of Isaiah. And this way through the wilderness was viewed as a new and greater exodus. So, in the first exodus, God led Israel out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the land. In the second exodus, this new exodus, God will lead them out of exile, through the wilderness, back into the land and into Jerusalem. And the promise develops this time, though, because this isn't just about leading Israel home. The nations are going to come in. It won't just be about leading them to the land of Canaan to dwell, but a whole new creation is going to come. The whole world is going to be like Eden again. And He won't just rescue them from Babylon like He rescued them from Pharaoh. He's going to rescue them from a greater oppressor, Satan, and the oppressive slavery of sin and idolatry and eternal death. So here's what it means when Mark quotes this at the outset. I mean, why is Mark, the very first thing he says, right, is this quotation. Why is he doing this? He's saying that the good news of this new exodus is happening. The Lord is returning to His people. He will bring them out of exile and of sin and death. He will lead them to Jerusalem, and He'll be enthroned as the King forever. He'll bring in a new creation forever. And Mark is saying this, This is what Jesus came to bring. So through the story in Mark, Jesus, Mark draws attention to this, is making His way to Jerusalem through the wilderness. And He's gathering people to Himself to follow Him on His way to Jerusalem. He's giving them freedom from their deepest exile, sin and death and the oppression of the devil. So I said there were three witnesses. Isaiah the prophet's the first one. I'll be briefer on the next two. The second witness is John the Baptist. 
Now, John is a very unique character, isn't he? Camel's hair, leather belt, eating locusts, out in the wilderness, eccentric. Um, But in light of what we just learned from Isaiah, he actually makes sense. Isaiah said there would be a messenger who would prepare the way for the Lord to bring this new Exodus redemption. And John shows up to do this. And what is John doing? Well, he's out in the wilderness baptizing people, dunking them in the water of the Jordan River. What is that about? It's a symbolic reenactment of the first Exodus. That's what he's doing. When Israel came out of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea, which is later viewed as a kind of baptism, and then through the wilderness. And if you remember that first wilderness generation uh, rejected the Lord, and so the next generation is the one that actually enters the land. And when they do, do you know what they had to go through to get to the land? The Jordan River. And the Jordan River passing through it was viewed as a reenactment of coming through the Red Sea. So in other words, Israel came out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and then they had to cross over through the Jordan in another Red Sea uh, path through the, the sea, uh, the, the river, to get to the land. So John's out here, out in the wilderness, calling people to come out to gather in the wilderness again to, in a sense, re-enter the land. He's calling them back to their beginnings. He's saying, we need to start over here, folks. It's time for a new exodus, a deeper exodus, a truer exodus. Uh, And look what he's wearing, strange dress, right? Camel's hair and leather belt. It's not just eccentric, though. He's dressing up as Elijah because Malachi, another text that Mark quoted here with Isaiah, said that there would be a messenger who would come and it would be Elijah. And so John's saying, I am this new Elijah. And so he's, he's got the costume of Elijah on because he's the prophet who's coming to prepare the way for this. And so John is saying, I'm the new Elijah. And the new exodus is here. So think about our, just a, a parallel situation that could happen. It would be odd today, but you can get the point. Think about our history in America. This would be like someone going to Philadelphia, dressed like a founding father, and he's got a new copy of the Declaration of Independence, and the signatures are gone. But there's a blank space because he's taken signatures again. What's he saying? We got to start over. I need fresh signatures here. Right? That's what John is doing. He's calling them to join him in starting over again. But there's a difference this time because we need our deepest problem solved. This isn't just about Israel coming out of exile in Babylon. This is about Israel and you and me, all nations coming out of our exile from God's presence, right? Ever since we were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, we've been born in spiritual sin and death, and we've been exiled from God's presence. And this is about rescuing us from this. And we see that because John, notice in verse 4 what his focus is. He's baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's not just saying, hey folks, we're going to get rid of the oppressive rulers over us. He's saying uh, that's coming when the Lord is king in the new creation. But he's saying right now we need to prepare for this. We need repentance and forgiveness. And so that's what they need. The deepest problem of every human and every nation is repentance. All of us, our deepest problem is that we need to return to the Lord and be forgiven. That's the deepest, deeper exodus we need. 
being freed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin's grip in our lives. So John's the second witness to this new exodus. Now the third witness is the torn sky. Look at verses 9 and 10. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and He was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately, notice this, He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. Mark is using a very specific and striking word here. He says the heavens are ripped or torn open, and then the Holy Spirit comes down. By the way, your translation may say something like, you saw the heavens opened. Um, That's a reflection of the word that Matthew and Luke used to refer to the heavens being opened, but Mark uses a word that means the heavens were ripped. Very specific word. And in light of what we just saw from Isaiah, it actually makes sense again. In Isaiah 63 and 64, Isaiah is lamenting that Israel's in exile. And in this lament, it's a prayer to the Lord, and he's recalling the first exodus. He's remembering how God redeemed his people from slavery and how he came down at Mount Sinai to be with them. And Isaiah, in this climactic moment of this prayer, he's pleading with the Lord, do it again. Won't you come down again? And listen to what he prays in Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah is saying, Lord, would you please rip the sky open and come down to do it again, just like you did at the first exodus. And here's the point. When Jesus is baptized and comes out of the water, Isaiah's prayer is being answered. God is ripping the heavens open, and he's coming down to rescue us from the deepest exodus, or the deepest exile that we have. So Isaiah the prophet, John the Baptist, and the ripped heavens, they're all showing us a new exodus is at hand. Now the final part. This is a gospel story about a new exodus through Jesus, the divine servant king. So the Holy Spirit comes down and rests on Jesus. So Jesus will be the one to bring about this new great salvation. But who is he? Who is this leader of a new exodus? Mark wants us to see that at the baptism of Jesus, he is shown to be the divine servant king. So, let's walk through each of those. First, he's divine. We see the triune God at the baptism, don't we? Father, Son, and Spirit. God the Son is baptized. God the Spirit descends on him. And God the Father speaks from heaven. And if we have any doubt that Jesus is divine here, we just have to remember what we've already seen. Remember back in verses 2 and 3 when Isaiah is quoted? Isaiah said that the messenger, who we know to be John the Baptist, will prepare the way for who? The Lord. Uh, In Isaiah, the word is Yahweh, the one true God. That's who's going to come. And who shows up? John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh. Uh, Mark is subtle. He's not going to say on every chapter, look, Jesus is God. But he will say in every chapter, 
Jesus is God in these subtle, elusive ways that if you know your Bible, you know exactly what he's doing. And so Jesus is God in the flesh. Second, he's the king. Look at verse 11 again. A voice came from heaven. It's God the Father speaking to God the Son. You are my beloved son. It's essentially a quotation from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a psalm about the enthronement of the king from David's line, the Messiah, the Christ that would come to rule over God's people. It's about the enthronement of this king. And when that Messiah is enthroned, Psalm 2 says that God will call him a son. So the father now is identifying at Jesus' baptism. He's identifying to be this long-awaited king. So Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh, God in the flesh. He's also the human king from David's line. And third, he's the servant. Notice what the father says next in verse 11. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, or with whom I am well pleased. That last phrase is a quotation from Isaiah again, this time from chapter 42, where Isaiah is giving this great vision of the new exodus, and he says that there will be someone who will come called the Lord's servant, and this servant will bring justice and peace to the world. He'll do what Israel and all of us have failed to live. He will be innocent and righteous and faithful. He'll live a sinless life. And yet, one of the great surprises in the book of Isaiah is what comes in Isaiah chapter 53, where this servant who will bring about this new exodus actually accomplishes it by dying as a sacrifice. So, through this servant's death and resurrection, In Isaiah 53, that's when this new exodus can be accomplished. And the reason for this is because we need a Savior to die for us because we deserve death for our sin, eternal death. And this servant will be, as Isaiah says, crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions. It was the will of the Lord to crush him so that we could be healed. And this is the great surprise of Mark's gospel too. Not just that God became a man, And not just that this man is the king, but that this God-man who's the king is also the servant. He came to reign as king, but he does that first through the cross. So Isaiah, remember, said that God would make a way through the wilderness. He'd bring his people out of exile through the wilderness to Jerusalem where he'd be enthroned. And Mark says, yes, um, God is here. God, the king is also the servant, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. But when he gets there, he doesn't get the kind of enthronement that we're expecting. He's enthroned first on a cross, and then the resurrection. So the way of the Lord is the way of the cross, the way of humble, self-sacrificial love for us, and then he calls us to join him on the way. So what does all this mean for us? Four brief uh, responses here. First, big picture Uh, What we've seen this morning from Mark means that it is foolishness to try to unhitch Jesus in the New Testament from the Old Testament or to try to discard that or just be embarrassed by the Old Testament, right? Jesus did not just arbitrarily show up in the middle of history without any context. Uh, He came part of a long story to bring the promised good news of a new exodus that the ancient scriptures promised. 
So let's not be embarrassed by the Old Testament. Let's not ignore the Old Testament. Mark isn't, and neither was Jesus. And Mark is showing us that the Old Testament Scriptures, and especially Isaiah, actually help us understand the real Jesus. So if you want to just know Jesus, you have to also know the Old Testament. Now second then, let's get to know the real Jesus. Mark is not giving us a cartoon Jesus. He's not giving us a little bobblehead Jesus. He's not giving us a dashboard or rearview mirror ornament Jesus. The real Jesus is the divine servant king who came to rescue us, God himself, who's come to reign and to do so first through the cross. Not who we expected, but exactly who we needed. Third, let's let him save us. We all need this new exodus liberation. Do you ever feel enslaved by a pattern of sin in your life? Anger, greed, lust, lust for approval and position and power. Do you ever feel like you're just in a dark cloud of the darkness of shame and guilt for your sin? Do you ever feel crushed? by the anxiety of the fear of death? Do you ever feel oppressed by demonic powers around you? Then Jesus came to set you free, to bring forgiveness, to bring freedom, to bring hope. So, the question this morning for you is, have you begun to trust Him yet? Have you begun to follow him on this way? And if you haven't, you can right now. And I encourage you to consider Jesus through this series and continue to trust him. And then finally, let's join in and participate in this movement. John was preparing people not just for personal salvation, but for a whole new movement. Jesus has now launched this movement into the world. It's a movement of people who follow the way of Jesus. Anyone can get in on this Wealthy, poor, young, middle-aged, old, those who think religion is interesting and those who think it poisons everything, anyone is welcome to join in on Jesus' way. And the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. We trust Him as the one who went to the cross for us, and then we join Him on His way of Spirit-empowered, self-sacrificial love, because that's what this world needs. So, what does it mean to be a disciple? We learn from Jesus to become like Jesus, and Mark shows us who this Jesus is and what it means to follow him on the way. So, I I want four more hours, but let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this story that you're writing through history. Thank you for revealing it. In the Gospel of Mark. Thank you for preserving the Gospel of Mark through the ages for us today. And thank you for, by the power of your Spirit, working in our own minds and hearts this morning to hear your voice, to understand what you are doing in the world, to understand who Jesus is, and to follow him. So we pray that you would empower us to delight in following the way of Jesus. And thank you for delighting in us. In Jesus' name.